Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Well, good evening. My name is Ronnie. I'm one of the members here at GCC, and it's my privilege and honor to bring you God's word today. As Teresa said earlier, our aim and goal, the whole the mission statement behind Gospel Community Church is to make Jesus a hero. I hope that's clear through the message today and through everything we do here from the volunteers and the worship and the, the singing, the, the preaching, and even the close of the service. We pray that that's evident. We here at Gospel Community Church absolutely believe that Jesus is the hero of all of human history, that it's not ourselves that are the center of the entire universe, but our whole Our goal here is to lift up and magnify the truth that Jesus is actually the hero of all those things. So if you're new here, happy to see you. We promise not to do anything weird to you. We pray that this is a safe place you can come and investigate the claims of Christianity. And if you've been coming for a while, it's good to see family again and come together and worship with you. And if you've been coming for a while, you know that we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, which I actually love. I would have asked Rick for another preaching opportunity earlier in the series, but I've been crazy busy with this uh, semester of school. So busy that I've, I've worked myself sick a couple times during the semester, as you can tell with my voice. Hopefully I can make it through the entire sermon. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because I love the teacher, the main voice in the sermon, who, as Rick said, is, is most likely King Solomon. I love him for all the wrong reasons. Uh, he's this sarcastic cynic that always talks in a very tongue-in-cheek manner. Uh, He's absolutely fine with stirring up controversy and shaking up preconceived notions about the world, which he even does in the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. And throughout the the book of Ecclesiastes, he's not afraid to touch sensitive subjects like time and death, as he often does throughout the book. He even uses this Hebrew idiom, under the sun, which is like this life lived without God, and what does that look like? He, He reminds me of what Paul calls us to do or says we are able to do with the truth of Christianity, which is knock down lofty arguments. It's one of my favorite things about Christianity is that it is true. Uh, The cynic in Ecclesiastes is like the guy that goes through crippling worldviews left and right as people throw up objections to the Christian faith that uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. And you go, is that absolutely true? (laughs) Everything is meaningless. Well, then so is that statement. Or... All we have is our opinions. Wasn't that just your opinion? And so he's kind of like this guy that if you could imagine uh, a worldview, which is the way that we see the world, um, you have the the Christian worldview, a secular worldview, all different lenses through which we see the world. If you could imagine a worldview as a car, the author many times, people bring up their worldview to him and he says, all right, well, let's, let's jump in the car and let's see how far that gets us. Fully knowing as he walks up to the car, that thing looks like it's been absolutely gutted. There's no tires. The thing's up on cinder blocks. But he goes, you know, I'll I'll indulge you. Let's let's jump in the car and we'll see how far we get. And so he gets in, turns the key. Nothing happens. He's like, you realize your battery's dead. Uh, Let's take a look under the hood. And oh, you have no engine. And so he he, he's okay with exposing uh, by stepping into other worldviews and and seeing what's going on there. And that's one of my favorite things about the Book of Ecclesiastes. So we've been going through this series. Uh, Rick has entitled it, The Gospel Gives Meaning. We're continuing today in Ecclesiastes 8, off of Rick's sermon last week in Ecclesiastes 7. So if you have a, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open there now. If you don't have a Bible, there are some strategically placed throughout the room. 
And if you don't own one at all, that's actually a gift from Gospel Community Church to you. Take it, treasure it. Uh, That is the inspired word of God. The title of this sermon is that Jesus gives us peace. And if there's one thing I'd like you to walk away remembering as you go throughout your week is that Jesus gives us peace. I will, I will read Ecclesiastes 8 and then jump into it. Before I begin, though, uh, in reading this, the very first verse, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I want to say that I actually think that verse should actually be attached on to chapter 7, as well as some other commentators believe this as well. The thing about chapters and verse divisions, they, they are not part of the uh, original inspired text. The authors didn't originally put those in there. They weren't created until the 13th century. Uh, and, and, but it is a helpful way of us kind of, even I can say, hey, go to Ecclesiastes 8, chapter 4, look down, what does that say? And we can all kind of get there together. So they're useful and, and probably necessary. But I, I think in this, he's asking a rhetorical question in verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? Usually people ask a rhetorical question at the end of an argument. They give an argument and then they say, am I not right? So I believe that this is part of verse 7. What do you think? You agree with me? See? Rhetorical question. I just closed my argument. So I think verse uh, chapter 8, or the, the, the thing that Solomon's going to walk through, actually begins in verse 2. So I'll begin reading. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun." When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the busyness that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us to this place and allowing us to come and worship you in this building. I pray that today, you would open up our eyes and increase our awareness of our own wickedness and sin in our lives and your perfect holiness. And I pray that you would remind us of the gap and the bridge that closes that gap. I pray that your gospel would be manifest today to everyone here. We love you, God. Holy Spirit, we pray you come now, open up our eyes and ears and speak only truth today. We love you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So as I said, I think this really starts in verse 2 if we're looking at Ecclesiastes 8. And before we, we jump into it, I want to clarify one thing. That I think if you look down at verse 2 when it says uh, Solomon gives this command, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. I actually think the king is God in this context. It may not sound like it right off the way, um, and I'll give you a little bit of my argument for why I think that is. And for the sake of not boring you to death with linguistic antecedents and the different interpretations of scripture or, or the different translations of the original manuscripts, uh, I will say that I think it better fits the context of the chapter and the context of the immediate paragraph when it's, as you see, as we move through it, it goes from keeping the king's command to fearing God to knowing God's ways. I think the king reference in here would be God. I think context is important. Um, and to, to show why I think context is important, I actually had a verse that I'd like to show you guys. So one thing, just to show you the importance of reading your entire Bible and not pulling different verses out and, and singling them out to, to demonstrate a point or anything, um, Many, many times, I, I've even heard this from other people that, that Mormons would use this verse to say that there are many gods. And so you see, it says right there, indeed, there are many gods and many lords. And you say, oh, okay, there is more than one God. And they would use this as a proof text to prove it. But if you go to the very next slide, if you look at the verse before and the verse after, which is what we're going to do as we walk through Ecclesiastes 8, it literally says twice, right before and right after, that there is only one God. And that's the problem of, of proof texting, not looking at the whole context. So we're going to look at the, the whole context here and determine uh, what, what this is talking about here. So look at verse 2. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. When it moves into verse 3, it gives a second command. Be not hasty to go from his presence. And that command right there is sandwiched between two other commands. Right before that in verse 2, if you look back, it said keep the king's command. Now it says do not be hasty to go from his presence. And then again, in verse 3, it says, do not take your stand in an evil cause. I actually think this is the same command given three times. And what Solomon is essentially saying here is obey God, obey God, obey God. We know from other places in scripture, especially in Hebrew, it's not quite like the English language. When we want to throw emphasis on something, sometimes we'll throw an exclamation point at the end of it. Or we'll speak even louder to bring people's attention to it. One of, one of my favorite examples of scripture in drawing people's attention to something by saying something three times is uh, when, when the Israelites are, are, are moving through after they've gotten out of Egypt, uh, there, there's a King Balak who, who commissions a, a prophet, a sorceress to come up on a high mountain and pronounce curses over the people of Israel. And three times he has him pronounce curses, but every single time God pronounces, uh, uses him to pronounce blessing. The king gets mad. He's like, you know, three times I've called you up here to you know, speak curses over these people, but you keep speaking blessing as if God was to say, this will absolutely happen. These blessings will come to pass. We see in other scriptures, holy, 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 when speaking of who God is, he's not just holy, he's holy, holy, holy. This is a way of drawing uh, importance onto something. A lot, a lot of times in Hebrew poetry, it's not rhyming necessarily word for word like we do in our own English language, although it does at different times, but usually they'll take thought for thought. So it won't be like cat and rat. It'll be like uh, cat and feline as it moves through the poetry. So I think he's, he's drawing our attention and, and emphasizing this part. Obey God, obey God, obey God. So it's something he wants us to pay attention to. Now, why is it so important? In verse 3, you have a transition, a conjunction word right there, for, which could switch out as because or for. It's saying, why do we do these things? For he does whatever he pleases. 
may seem weird to us. Where, where is the connection there? We need to obey God because he does whatever he pleases. Well, I would ask the question, what pleases God? What displeases God? If you pull up the next slide and look at Isaiah 59, 15, you see that one of the things that displeases God is the absence of justice. When there is a lack of justice in the land, this is something that brings displeasure upon God because it is part, it's part of his nature, part of his character, is justice. If you look at Jeremiah 29, or, or 9, 24, excuse me, we know that this is something that God also delights in. So it's something he finds pleasure in. And it's on the next slide, Jeremiah, not, yes. So this is something that God finds delight in. It says justice, righteousness, and also says love. A lot of times people want to em- overemphasize one of these over the other as if they're contradicting things, that love and justice don't go together. But we know this isn't true if we were to tease it out and examine it like the author of Ecclesiastes would and examine that, that, that statement or that thought. If we were all in a courtroom and I was up here as a judge and we had a, a guilty defender, somebody who had killed multiple people, uh, the evidence was clear, the jury has already decided unanimously that they were absolutely guilty and I as a judge stand here and say, it's clear you're guilty, you're absolutely guilty, but uh, I'm, I'm a loving judge. And because I, I love so much, I, I'm not gonna sentence you to prison. I, I'm not going to do that because of my love. Now we would all immediately have a problem with that. And I would even say that not only is there an ab- absence of justice, there's an absence of love for the, those that have been killed and the families that have been left behind. These things aren't mutually exclusive, love and justice, but sometimes we often overemphasize the other. And I'll get into why I think that is later. But not only does justice please him, his justice is also final and supreme over all things. If you look at verse 3, he gives another reason why we should obey God, obey God, obey God. He says, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? No one is standing before the throne of God at the end of days coming before God's justice and being able to say, well, well hold on, I, I, I was a good person. I was this, I was that, or, or make some kind of case that they can over, oversee God's justice and his law. This, this law is supreme. It stands over all things. Matthew 12, 36 says that God will judge us for every even careless word we speak, not to mention the more heinous sins we've committed, lustful thoughts, actions, hatred that we've expressed towards others in our hearts or physically, greed and the pursuit of wealth, even at the expense of others sometimes. So what are we to do? We'll look at verse five. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. That's it. That's the answer. Keep all of God's commands and live wisely. That is, do what God says and make wise decisions. And you don't have to worry that God is concerned with justice or that his word is supreme. There's a time and an opportunity before you every day and in every way to obey God and follow his wisdom he has given to us in this world. Simple enough, right? Just, just never disobey God, never walk out from his presence and never stand for an evil cause. Boom, done. You won't have to be concerned that God is pleased with justice. But verse six says, although, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, a trouble here literally means evil. What evil or trouble is it that lies heavy on the hearts of men? Honestly, if you, if you don't know or even sense right now what that trouble 
or the evil is, I would say you probably haven't been listening. All the way up into this point, if you don't know what the trouble is that's lying heavy on the hearts of men, you haven't been listening or you're lying to yourself. If you aren't feeling the trouble, yet the author reminds us in verse 8, as he has in other parts of Ecclesiastes, that we will all eventually die. Look at verse 8. No, no man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. You don't have the power within yourself to stop the inevitable. He's mentioned this before. The justice of God that you may have escaped in this life will ultimately be accounted for when you die and you'll be given, you'll give an account before God as it says in Romans 14, 12. The author promises us in this verse that if we've given into wickedness and look at the end of verse eight, there will be no deliverance for us. That means we will not be spared for the wrath of God if we've given into evil. And the preacher says he's, he's seen this. We, we know, as, as Rick mentioned before in earlier sermons, that this isn't a young man speaking to us. The teacher is not a young man. This is a man who's lived many, many days in a long life, and he's experienced many things. He said he's observed all this stuff in verse 9. When he's applied his heart to do everything that's able to be done under the sun or under the physical world without God, when man had power over one another to hurt one another, he sees the wicked being buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place being praised for all the things that they'd done and that this is all ultimately meaningless. All vanity. And if this wasn't bad enough, if you haven't felt the, the weight and the trouble of all these things that he's talking about lays heavy on the heart of man, it gets even worse in verse 11. I hope we weren't... Yeah. It gets even worse in verse 11 as it goes on. Last year we went through the book of Genesis and one of the first things I thought was interesting to point out about the book of Genesis, this is a grace-heavy church and a gospel-heavy church, is that our very existence is a grace of God. If grace is unmerited favor, there is nothing you could have done to earn your existence. It's literally impossible. There's nothing you could have done before having been brought here to, to, for God to say, oh yeah, you deserve to live now. Let me, let me create uh, this person. The Genesis 1 and 2 is an evidence of God's grace, not just for us individually, but for all of humanity collectively. And so God is incredibly gracious to all, but in verse 11, he expounds this grace even more, and in a way, it almost heaps even more of this, this burden or this trouble, this evil upon our shoulders, because it says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You know, many times in the Old Testament, you see God uh, demonstrating his patience, not just to the Israelites, but to many nations. As a matter of fact, a lot of people gawk at the way that God handles the Canaanites. They say, oh, look, look at God of the Old Testament. He's so angry and, and, and violent. You know, what? this looks like genocide. But that's just like I talked about earlier with Corinthians and, and uh, pulling out one text. It's not looking at the overall story. We forget that in other passages, that God had been patient with the Canaanites for over 400 years, 400 years of child sacrifice and, and, and idolatry. 400 years he gave them to repent. Look at the patience. And the truth is, God has been incredibly gracious to all of us. Every breath we breathe. The fact that uh, a sentence about an evil deed is not executed speedily, that every single time we sin, there's not a lightning bolt that comes down from heaven to strike us. It only seems to uh, expand upon our, our guilt and shame we're given more opportunity because justice doesn't come quickly because God is patient. We almost heap even more guilt upon ourselves. Instead of turning from our sin and worshiping him, we take advantage of the fact that his justice is not executed speedily. 
In verse 13, the teacher reminds us that justice will ultimately be done, though. He says, it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. And this is interesting. The language used here, prolong his days, because it's used somewhere else in Scripture. If you look at Isaiah 53.10, it uses the word prolong his days in reference to the Messiah, to Jesus. That he would prolong his days. The cool thing about that is that that very same blessing that was promised to the Messiah is offered up to us in Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says we've been united to Christ, that we receive all his blessings. But there's two big questions here. When I say we, I don't mean all of us, we, I'm talking about in the context of the verse, it uses the, the word we. The two big questions I would ask is who, who are the we in Ephesians 1 and 11? And who are the wicked in Ecclesiastes 8? I'd say from reading Ecclesiastes 8 so far, it's probably been pretty obvious who the wicked are. But I think it would only take five seconds in Ephesians 1 to see who those are that are in Christ who inherit that gift of a prolong, uh, the prolonging of days. Before I move on to that, let's, talk, let's stop for a second and take stock of the, of the teacher's life, though. If this truly is Solomon, um, it, it, it's interesting that he's, he's telling us that the wicked, the wicked's days will not be prolonged. It's interesting that Solomon would say that. And then he's talking about obeying God and not going from his presence, if you know anything about King Solomon. First off, in Deuteronomy 17, there was many things that the kings were not, they were commanded not to do. They're not commanded to collect many horses, multiply their horses, multiply their wives, multiply their gold and silver. Solomon literally breaks all three of these. It also says not to marry foreign women. Solomon does that as well. And they turn his heart after other gods. So not only does he engage in adultery and idolatry, he breaks these other commands. And then at the end of this, here we have him in Ecclesiastes 8, telling us that God will not prolong the days of the wicked. I wouldn't, I don't think it's hypocrisy that he's saying this. And I don't think it would be hypocrisy for me to stand up here and say all these things either. Because the truth of it is, while I think the banner of wicked hangs over all of humanity, I, I think it absolutely hangs over myself as well. But if you go back to verse 6 in Ecclesiastes, that heaviness that he talks about is mentioned somewhere else as well. Look at verse 6 in Ecclesiastes. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. I think that heaviness that he's speaking about is the evil that we've, we've all committed, the sins we've committed against God, the times we've gone out from his presence and disobeyed his command. But here's the beautiful thing about that. If you look in Matthew 12, as you were Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, and I'll read it for us, and you can go there yourself if you'd like. But Jesus says, says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can't forget that the, the Bible was a story told over many, many years, and God's revelation is progressive. That means he revealed it slowly over time. And we have to remember that Solomon was about 900 to 1,000 years before the time of Christ. If you look in verse 17, Solomon asked some, some very interesting questions that I think 
we have the answer to now as the new covenant church. He says, when he applied his heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one's eyes see sleep, then he sees all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. I think we can find out this, the work of God now. While Solomon was looking forward to the promises given to David and, and Moses, all the covenants that have been ratified up to that point were pointing forward to Jesus Christ who would come and ratify a new covenant with his people. I think the work of God is answered in, in John 6, 39, when Jesus answers his disciple, answers his disciples, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The truth of it all is that we have all broken God's commands. We've all left his presence. We've all stood up for evil causes. But God has stepped in as a God-man, Jesus Christ, and done all of these things for us. Jesus Christ, when he lived his earthly ministry, he obeyed God's commands perfectly. He was always within the presence of the Father, and he never stood up for an evil cause. As a matter of fact, many times he stood against evil causes. Not only did he do what the law required um, in, in obeying God, not sinning, but he also stood up for what was right, and, and he stood up for justice, and he sought to bring justice. And I think this is, when we talk about the holiness of God, and, and the sinfulness of man, the wickedness of all these commands that have been disobeyed, that Jesus Christ is the bridge that, gaps, that, that brings this gap together. When we recognize and sit in the fact that we have broken every single command of God's, and we look at the, the bridge, the life of Jesus Christ that reconciled those two things, that that banner of wicked is no longer hanging over the lives of those who believe in Christ. And, and that believe is not just a mere theological assent to a, a proposition. It's not just simply believe, and James talks about it's, it's no big deal that you simply believe, the, the demons believe, it's not, it's not a big deal. But belief here is more of a putting faith in, a trust in it. It's, it's a trust in the work of Christ, what he has done on your behalf. Not trusting in your own righteousness, but what Jesus has done on your behalf. I've, I've used this analogy before that if you were hanging off of a ledge and you had no ability to save yourself and pull yourself up and I reached my hand over the side and I said, grab my hand, have faith in me or believe in me. I'm not asking you at that point to believe that I exist. Obviously I exist, I'm there in physical form reaching out my hand for you to grab it. But I'm asking you to recognize that in this moment you have no ability to save yourself and you need someone else to pull you up. And that's what that, that New Testament word faith, belief, really captures. It's the idea of not looking to your own works, the works that Solomon in Ecclesiastes 8 said that no one knew, but now we do know as the New Covenant Church, that these are the works of Christ that he did on our behalf that we take hold of. When the New Testament talks about being in Christ, it's finding ourselves literally hidden in Christ, that when God sees us, he sees us as Jesus Christ having perfectly obeyed and perfectly been in the presence and perfectly having never stood up for any evil cause. So I'll close with this. I think this is the application for us. Whether you're not a Christian, or you are a Christian, and you've been one for many, many years, to sit and reflect on the fact of our disobedience, that God is perfectly holy and he has given us certain commands to fulfill. And part of God's perfect nature is his justice, that God is 
loving, but he is also just, and he will see every evil deed accounted for. To sit in that and recognize it. But not to wallow in misery or to, or to stay there in a lack of hope, but to recognize that also something has been done on our behalf, that Jesus lived a perfect life fulfilling all of those things for us. So that as it says in Ecclesiastes 8, I think the only way we can truly experience the joy that the author talks about in verse 15 when he commends us for joy so that we can truly eat and drink in a joyful manner, not worrying about the, the final day of judgment when we stand before God, that we can be given a whole new flavor to life, a whole new freedom, as Caleb mentioned up in the beginning of the, the before the worship, or, or I'm sorry, as he closed out the, the singing, the songs, he talked about the freedom we have in Christ to come and worship God, to freely enter into his presence. God has called and drawn us back into the blood of Christ. And as a matter of fact, in a few minutes, we're actually going to take communion. It's something that we do every week as we reflect upon this truth that has been accomplished on our behalf. It's the fact that those three things that Solomon commanded in the beginning of Ecclesiastes 8, that we take the bread. And we're reminded that the, the, the whole thing that was put on display before all of humanity, that Jesus was publicly crucified and all these things that had happened was because of the sin that we had committed, because of all the disobedience and the many times throughout human history that we have stepped out from the presence of God. As we take the bread, we're reminded that his body was crushed for that very reason. And then the blood, the juice that we take, is a reminder of the bridge that brings us in, back into the presence of God, that it was all our sins, washed clean, that the banner of wicked no longer hangs over the life of the Christian, but a new banner reigns over our, our eyes, and that is righteous, redeemed, perfect, blameless. The Bible says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? That they've been completely washed, clean, forgiven, holy even. This, this heaviness that I would say we all feel, and, and, I, know, and I know we feel it, even outside of the Christian culture, I know we feel it because I see it every day in the culture around us. Everybody's trying to justify their existence. Some of you have probably even heard of the term virtue signaling. It's something that people do all the time. They try to point to some, some cause or something to be virtuous about, to see how virtuous I am as if to try to earn their own, or earn their own place in society or a place before God. As a matter of fact, if I could give a quick plug for Man Camp, Ray Orland, when he spoke last, last uh, time we went there, he talked about this. From the moment we wake up to the moment we lie down, we're constantly trying to justify our existence before God. Look around you in the culture. Look at everything people are standing up for nowadays and pointing to in order to earn their own virtue. It can't be done that way. It cannot be done that way. It is only through the blood of Christ. He is the one that lifts that heaviness that weighs upon our souls, as it says in Matthew 11. He's the one who gives us peace. He's the one who gives us rest so that we may go and be joyful and celebrate and rest that that heavy burden has been lifted off of our backs. That's my application and that's what I hope you would, you would go through and believe even more this week. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you've, you've brought us a solution for the problem of our sin and your holiness that you've stepped into humanity. God, you are transcendent and holy, but you are also imminent and close and near to us. Thank you for drawing us back into your presence. We've stepped out from, from it 
a countless number of times. And our disobedience has been great. But thank you for the grace that you've given us through Jesus Christ. I pray this week we, we would reflect upon that peace and celebrate with much joy, God. I pray that we could go and do the things that Solomon talks about, that we could eat and drink and be joyful and celebrate with one another what you've done. Even as we're about to sing, I pray, we, I pray that we would lift up our voices in, in, in joyous praise for what you've done every single day, God. Thank you for the gift you've given us. Thank you for bridging the gap between your holiness and our sin through Jesus Christ. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.